diseases like Alzheimer's also affect all of us. For me, what it was, was seeing a piece on television about acquired savant syndrome. And then specifically the idea of acquired artist syndrome, where it was just amazing to me as it, as, uh, as someone was explaining, why would someone who has never painted in their life suddenly become obsessed with painting? Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring and influential guests who are making their mark on the world and contributing to the common good. Making your mark, big or small, is creating a legacy, and it's one of the proven ways we can age with energy and joy. Zestful Aging Podcast is my legacy, and I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker. Find out more at judybanker.com. And to find out more about this podcast, my web courses, and other offerings, hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at my interviews and other fun tidbits. Well, you know I've got my loyal Jack Russell Sparky right by my side, so let's begin. Have you ever wondered what would happen if one of your family members developed Alzheimer's and unexpectedly came to live with you? This may be happening for some of you already. Uh, today we're going to speak with acclaimed author and poet Eleanor Lerman, whose book Watkins Glen examines this very experience. At the heart of Watkins Glen is a story of Susan, a woman in her 60s who reluctantly finds herself having to take care of her estranged older brother, Mark, who's developed Alzheimer's. Susan is living in Watkins Glen, a town in upstate New York where she takes her brother to live temporarily, she thinks. In the throes of his illness, Mark develops a rare but well-known symptom of dementia called acquired artist syndrome, whereby people who have never even thought about painting suddenly become obsessed with art. It is a gorgeous book, and I am so happy to have the author with us today. Welcome to the show, Eleanor. Hi, so nice to be with you today. Thank you so much. So how did you decide, I mean, you have a long, long writing career, but I'm wondering how you decided to write a book about some pretty unusual themes like acquired artist syndrome, the Loch Ness Monster, and drag racing of all things. Uh, I think it was my brother who first pointed out to me that my brain must be like a closet <laughs> where everything that I, I experience, TV shows I see, books I read, offhand remarks that people have made to me, I seem to store everything. <laughs> You're a collector. Apparently, but of experiences and images. And he, I guess he knew this because he recognizes some of the things that turn up in some of my writing, even things that happened to both of us when we were children. And uh, what I had just finished 
a, a writing a novel and you know with me it's okay what happens next and just somehow all various doors in my mind open up and things begin presenting themselves like wouldn't it be interesting to include this or include that and to tell you the truth this actually started with the lake monster that's in the book mm -hmm. um it started with i always had a love affair with loch ness monster with nessie and when I was when I was a teenager, I had a picture of Nessie um, above my bed. I had gotten it very bad, Eleanor. I took it out of a magazine. I took it out of a book in the library, you know, before <laughs> before long before the internet existed. Uh, and my, was it a cartoon or was it a no, supposed photo? It's the very famous photo that has now been proven to be fake, but I didn't know that then. You can all you can sort of see Nessie's head. Uh, long neck and head sticking out of the water. It's a very famous picture. Mm -hmm. So I put it above my bed and my stepmother told me it was sacrilegious, which was very confusing because we weren't religious about anything. <laughs> but anyway, so it was a combination of thinking about Nessie and of all things in the book, there is an, an issue about water prices being raised for people who are working class or on retired income and they can't afford to pay the water rates. Mm -hmm. That's something that I had been reading about that w is actually happening all over the world, really. Uh, not just private companies taking over water resources and charging more for them, but in the wider world now, there's such a often disputes about access to water. Mm -hmm. Wars are being fought over access to water. So it was all these elements that are floating around in my mind and somehow they coalesced into this story. Mm -hmm. Also, of course, you know, I, I am getting older. I'm 69 now. And so I'm seeing things through a different lens than I did when I was younger. And so it was all of this stuff and seen through the age of someone my age and it all kind of came together into this story. Don't ask me how, but there it is. <laughs> Don't ask me how. Now, I, I've, I've read uh, quite a bit of Anne Lamott's work, and she mm -hmm. always has a pad or a book, a, a little journal that she takes with her hiking, and she jots down things. Is that something you do as well? Or how do you, do you storyboard this? Or no. how, what's the process? She's much more organized and ambitious than I am. <laughs> Um, I think it just, like I said, everything, some, something in my mind makes a snapshot of stuff I find interesting and puts it on a shelf somewhere. Uh, I wish I was organized enough, like to make notes, but I don't think I have to. It's almost like when I sit down, when I'm finished one project and I sit down and say, okay, my office, by the way, is a purple couch. Mm. Uh, I don't, I have a desk, but it's mostly used for storage. So I sit down on the purple couch. I have a little white dog. The little white dog is at the foot of the couch. Mm. And it's sort of like opening myself to the universe and saying, okay, now what? And mm. that's when all these pieces start floating out. And they you're, you're using yourself as some kind of vessel or channel? Um, that's an interesting uh, observation. If I'm using myself in that way, it's as a connection. It's like I'm listening to a radio in my own mind. Mm -hmm. And that radio is constantly broadcasting things that are interesting to me, might not be interesting to anyone else. So it's an internal dialogue that's, I think, always going on. And I think most 
writers, painters, you know, artists would probably mm-hmm. tell you the same thing. Um, what they find most interesting is their own thoughts. And then it's, it's very selfish. Being a, an artist is, is a, it's a selfish, it's a hard profession. It's also very selfish because you're so involved with what you find interesting or what you want to express. Mm-hmm. So I think that's probably what goes on with most people who are you know, struggling to write or to paint or to dance or, you know, anything. Mm-hmm. Um, one aspect of the book is actually, uh, I think, very relevant for many, many people, and that is caring for a, a loved one with Alzheimer's. Um, that That's, a, I wouldn't say universal, but it certainly is uh, an issue. Uh, is there anything in particular that led you to to make that sort of the, one of the main themes of the book? Well, you're, you're right. You know, it is, I think all over the world, all families are struggling with this. You know, it's like coronavirus isn't just uh, endemic to one country. It's affected the whole world. Diseases like Alzheimer's also affect all of us. For me, um, what it was it actually was seeing uh, a piece on television about acquired savant syndrome. Mm-hmm. And then specifically the idea of acquired artist syndrome, where it was just amazing to me as it, as, uh, as someone was explaining, why would someone who has never painted in their life suddenly become obsessed with painting? Mm-hmm. The explanation was that what may happen in Alzheimer's is that as the parts of your brain that deal with who you were, what your life was, the practicalities of the things that you did all through your life, as those parts of the brain begin to fade away. We all have some parts of us that are interested in art or music or whatever, even though maybe it was never an expressed interest in life. But what may happen is that those parts of your brain that are still operating suddenly take over. And so suddenly someone who's never expressed an interest in art wants to paint. And I Mm -hmm. thought that was fascinating. And Mm -hmm. so it led me to the idea of, what I'm always trying to do is understand in a way, what is the point? What are we doing with our lives? What's the point of our lives? And especially as we get older, how do we understand what our lives are and what they mean? And i began to think, my gosh, if that's what's hidden in the back Ooh. of our brains is this extraordinary desire to create, to make music or to paint. That even explains, you know, the, the earliest um, uh, signs we see of humanity, the handprints on the wall that we've uh, seen in like Lascaux caves. Uh. So uh, it was that. I actually came into the idea of writing about Alzheimer's from the point of view of this rare condition that Uh may happen. Mm, Really captured you. What does this mean about who we are, our brain, our identity, our life? What gets um, expressed and what does not? What's dormant? That's right. Because what do they always tell us? That we use some small part of our Mm -hmm. brains. So Mm -hmm. what's the rest of it 
doing sitting there quietly in the dark <laughs> waiting yeah Just maybe waiting. it would maybe it would really like you to be painting pictures or something mm -hmm. and there was the symbolism about um the brother mark in the book where the more ill he got the less uh clear the the paintings were and 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 then all this you know and then at at some point it just became became kind of blobs. Well, I think um, in a way that's an expression of the fear of losing control of yourself. You know, all of us as we get older experience physical problems, illness, we forget things even though, you know, we're not necessarily in the early stages of dementia, but we've all had the experience of walking into a room and saying, what am I doing here? Mm -hmm. Or the eternal quest for your lost glasses, right? <laughs> so this was a way of trying to express that fear. Am I getting cloudy? Am I losing mm -hmm. my ability to control what's going on around me and the answer of course is yes uh, we all are you know every minute you're alive you're losing some part of your control over what goes on around you if you ever even had any so this was a way of of expressing that to see that as his mind becomes less able to function even his outward expression the paintings become less clear and but and on the other hand he, um, one of the main characters really her life becomes more clear yes. and uh, she makes some important shifts in her own sort of development and looking back and saying boy I've been angry for a long time um, I've been alienated from my family I've had a lot of resentments and she seems to really kind of come into her own as her brother is losing his ability to fully function as a, you know, a thinking person. Yes. Yeah. She begins to realize exactly what you said, that she's been angry and disconnected for too long. And in almost being forced to take care of her brother and rediscovering how much they actually do love each other mm -hmm. and how much one of the things that's very important to me to express in this story was how siblings are witnesses to their to each other's lives mm -hmm. especially siblings who've gone through traumatic childhoods my brother and i uh, went through a lot of trauma in our early life and it was important for me to be able to use Susan uh, and Mark as a way of bringing together the, that idea of that if you are close with your sibling as you go through your life, as you get older, the more you can talk to that person and say, this really happened, right? Mm -hmm. This really, and I really felt, my gosh, I felt this way. What, how, what did you feel? What was going on in your mind? And it's interesting, my brother actually um, called me the other day and said, well, his therapist said to ask me something about something he had said. And it was an important way for the both of us to discuss something about our father. And how wonderful that is that he and I can go through our lives and keep 
being able to confirm for each other, yes, this happened. Yes, I'm still mm -hmm. here for you and always will be. So I wanted to use the two characters, Susan and Mark, to make the point of how important that is and how lucky you are if you can be close to your sibling, brother, sister, whatever, all through your life. It's, it's, and, and for Susan in particular, the more she realizes that her brother is her witness, mm -hmm. the more she's able to understand her own life in talking to him and it mm -hmm. lightens her in and a way. She, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, and it's, it's, I think it's both and because she's, they, they, they know they have this lived experience, this shared experience, but there's also Mark has a different interpretation. Yes. And so that she can see, yes, we both suffered and I went this way with it and you went that way, that there's different ways of responding. Yes. And again, I think I, I know I took that from uh, my life and my brothers because we both had the same experience that had to do with my mother's death. And we dealt with it in fundamentally the same way, but went off in different paths. Mm -hmm. And my brother, for instance, became a television producer because he's the kind of person who decided, okay, these terrible things happened to me, never again, I'm going to manage everything. And he was, he's fantastic at producing anything you need from a television show to you have to move out of this house and move into another my brother can do it oh. i yeah i on the other hand became um don't talk to me don't tell me anything don't teach me anything i am now going to take care of myself oh. but as the two of us have discussed at the bottom of all this is the desire to fix everything oh. to fix your own life or to fix the life around of people around you, because that was a response to trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I see. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to announce that my book is finally available for purchase on Amazon and my website, ZestfulAging.com. It's called Not Just Chatting, How to Become a Master Podcast Interviewer. And it's written for people interested in starting a podcast or for those already podcasting who want to stand out from the 2 million podcasts that are already out there. So please pass this along to anyone you know who could benefit from my 30 years experience as a psychotherapist and over 250 podcast interviews. Thanks so much this drag racing piece <laughs> yeah. is really interesting. Um, is that another part of the collection that you've been holding in the closet or is there something? Yes, uh... yes. And I can tell you exactly where that came from. When I was in my early 20s, somebody took me to, um, I still remember where it was, English Town, New Jersey, to see drag races. And I was just mesmerized and the demolition derbies it was fantastic <laughs> so that doesn't strike me as a fantastic for somebody who is a creative 
<laughs> like yourself. Oh, you know. T- tell me what was fascinating about that. It's outdoors. Um, it, it's usually a summery evening. Yes. And you're listening. You know, it's like it's, if you like uh, my brother and I were raised near Yankee Stadium. So we're both big baseball fans. But we also used to go uh, in Florida. To we would go to Florida and go to um, spring training or go to the baseball games of the minor league teams. Mm-hmm. That's what going to drag uh, um, demolition derbies and drag races are like. They're usually in um, small stadiums. Somebody's selling hot dogs. Mm-hmm. Somebody's running around them. There's a mascot in a chicken suit or something. <laughs> so it's this very sort of local amateur. Very loud because cars are bashing together. Yes, uh, experience and for someone like myself that generally doesn't like to admit they like things like that, mm-hmm. it was fabulous. Aha! Uh-huh. It's like a carnival kind of atmosphere, and yeah. it's just smashing things together. And plus, you know, again with with um, this is also I think a a, a universal problem. The more societies become unstable, the more you get people doing normal things in an outlaw way, like all over the world, everybody drives cars. But there's an outlaw version of driving cars, which is like drag racing, illegal drag racing. I live on Long Island uh, in New York, right near the beach. And it's a big problem. Illegal drag racing is has been even worse during the pandemic. Same so. here in Syracuse. And yeah. we, we can actually hear it. Uh, it's not close to my house, but we can hear it because it's yeah. so loud. I see. I did mm-hmm. not know that that was a problem in other parts of the country and the world. Yeah, I think it's a, at least, you know, in the States, you'll find almost everyone in every state complaining about I this. I did not know that. Yeah. So tell me about Watkins. Glen. Um, I know it because it's a beautiful place and they have a famous state park. Of course, they have the races. Yeah. Do you go and scope out these places? Uh, I'm going to tell you a secret and the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, I know upstate New York enough. Uh, my brother is turning out to be the second person in this conversation. My brother went to school at Cornell um, in Ithaca, and mm-hmm. then he lived uh, all in, in. He lived in. Um, I think he was in Syracuse for a while in Rochester when he he began his career as a newspaper person. So I used to go up upstate all mm-hmm. the time mm-hmm. uh, to see him, which is where I, being so much an urban person, actually got a real sense of what it was like to be out in the country in the in the mountains and you know the dark at night you no know, you you talk about it really eloquently and, and and very um it's very realistic thank you so watkins glen just became it was another one of these kind of um coalescing things where what can i do with this with drag racing and you know, lake monsters <laughs> what, you know Oh, and the other important element was, I was talking earlier about water issues. Mm-hmm. The band Fish usually has a, um, a festival uh, mm-hmm. in upstate, in, in Watkins Glen. I think it's called a Fish Concert, a Fish, mm. whatever. So they couldn't have uh, the concert one year, the Fish Festival, that's what it is. They couldn't have mm. the festival one year because, uh, as in the book, there was a sort of ecological disaster so much rain, all kinds of uh, trees and all kinds of, you know, um, 
soil and rocks went into the lake, uh, Seneca Lake, where Watkins Glen is located. Mm -hmm. The lake became polluted. There wasn't enough water. So they couldn't have people come to a big festival. And so all of that coalesced in my mind. Oh, here it actually happened. Here's Seneca Lake. And it was actually, uh, the water was undrinkable for a while. Seneca mm -hmm. Lake is actually a source of water for Watkins Glen. So it just became Watkins Glen is going to be the perfect place. Uh, not to denigrate any upstate New York town, but one upstate New York town doesn't look all that different from another. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was... The it architecture was, is very similar. Yes, you know, mm -hmm. and they all have these odd histories of um, having had all kinds of social movements have left their marks on all these different places. That's so. right. And, and you talked about um, Palmyra and yeah. some other places that I, I think that, you know, I guess I call myself an upstater. I've been living here for 20 years. And like, that's not in necessarily in the consciousness of people like, wow, there's been a lot of weird stuff that's happened yes. here. <laughs> Oh, there were a lot of doomsday movements in upstate New York. Uh -huh. You know, people would all flock to some hilltop with some leader uh, expecting the world to end on, you know, pick some date in 1893, and uh -huh. it didn't happen. But, you know, then there were always ways to explain why it didn't happen. But, yeah, upstate New York was a hotbed of doomsday cults uh -huh. in the two centuries uh -huh. ago and in the early 1900s as well. And then there's Lilydale and... Yeah, right. yeah, that's that's right. That's really interesting. I'm wondering what the experience is like when all of these disparate parts start, I think about like a puzzle and all of a sudden they're all fitting together and they and they're flowing. Is there like a bodily experience you have when you sit down to a writing station and you're like, wait a minute, Seneca Lake, and then we got, you know, this and the Loch Ness Monster and Alzheimer's. What's that like when they all start like tying together? It just feels like I think anybody who's doing any kind of work and gets the sense of, aha, mm -hmm. now I know what I'm doing. You know, from operating a forklift to um, <laughs> being a sculptor, you get the sense of, okay, now I get it. Mm -hmm. I can do this. So I think it's a universal feeling um, around work. Whatever mm -hmm. work you do, when you feel confident that you're doing it well. So I think that's the feeling, really. I see. Some kind of mastery. Yeah. Confident. I see. Yes. Does it feel like a flow state when you're sort of n not thinking about, oh, it's time for lunch or, oh, I'm going to have to use the bathroom or the dog needs to go out or something. Do you achieve some kind of flow state when you when you tie these things together and the writing is, is sticking together? I can only tell you two things about that. One is that I'm a very lazy writer, I think. Um, if I work two hours a day, that's a lot. I'm always amazed by these people, you know, read stories about great, great writers. Well, he worked all morning and then his wife made him eat a sandwich for lunch. And then he went up to the attic and he worked another six hours. I think they're, <laughs> I, I think they're kidding. I cannot imagine wanting to do that for that long, but, um, it's, it's, so it's that I'm, I'm pretty lazy, but it's more when I am focused, it's just a feeling of, really intense concentration. 
Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, I, ha- I have a purple couch. I have the dog. Mm. It's quiet. I'm in a particular room. It's I work early in the morning, very early, uh, because that's for me the best time. And so it's just an, a feeling of intense concentration on what I'm on what I'm doing. And that's my excuse for the reason that I can't do it very long. <laughs> for too long. Do yes. you have any ritual or do you do any breathing or anything to kind of get you in this state of concentration? Or do you just open your laptop and start start typing? It's discipline. You know, so many times I've been asked, as I'm sure every other writer has been asked, what is your source of inspiration? And my answer is, other than that closet in my mind, I don't have one. I have taught myself to be disciplined, meaning Mm -hmm. I know I work best in the morning. So every morning, every day, you know, unless there's some reason I can't, every single day you go to work. Mm -hmm. And what you learn is I'm, I'm sure it's not just writers. I'm sure it's other, other artists or, or just, you know, anyone who has to do something that involves some creativity they have to pull out of themselves. You can't wait for something to happen to make you feel, oh, now I can write this story or paint this picture. You have to be committed to doing it every day. And I think if you make that commitment and you like it, the channel that is open between yourself and your your outer self and your interior self is always open and it's always available to you. And so it's really just that, it's discipline. I, you know, Seth Godin, I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He's a, he's a big thought leader, entrepreneur guy. And he talks about just showing up to make crappy work, that that's part of the process. Absolutely. That it's not going to be beautiful. It's going to be a lot of crap. (laughs) But, but the part of that is that you have to put your butt in the seat and do it. And that's, and then the inspiration comes. You're not waiting for this sort of golden light to, to guide you. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a grittiness um, about the work, it sounds like. Yeah, you know, I have um, thrown away, not that I ever throw away anything, but I, I mean, I have not used as much work as I've actually had published. And this is over a career that's almost 50, yeah, it is 50 years now. I have a closet full. Uh, well, that when the days when you used to type on paper, I have a closet full. That's how old I am. And I have now laptops full of work that I have never shown anyone and, and never will because it's not good enough. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. I mean, that's what I mean about being confident that you know what you're doing. You can also be confident that you did your best with a particular piece, but it's really not good enough. And it doesn't mean you failed. It just means you tried something, it didn't work, you go on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really important lesson. Do you feel different? Um, how shall I say this? Is it is it transformative for you to do the process of writing a book like this? Are you a different woman now than you were before you started writing uh, Watkins Glen? Um, I don't think it is the product of my work that helps me um, helps me grow or changes me. I think it's actually the process of the work itself because you have to pe- keep asking yourself, what do you actually mean? 
What are you actually trying to say? And that involves a lot of interrogating yourself about what you think and what you care about. So in the end, the finished product itself, the book or the collection of poetry or collection of short stories, is finished when it's finished and I go on to the next thing. I'm not sentimental about books I've finished. I don't go back and you know think about them or anything like that having to do with the finished product. So it's the process that changes me because I'm always also I'm always checking in with myself. Had you know I, I, I keep talking about the fact that I know I'm getting older. I know that um, I've gone through several illnesses and that's changed me more than anything else. So it's the process and it's the way you weave together the things that happen to you as life goes on and how you turn those into stories. And then you put the story away when it's finished and you go on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. If you fall in love with what you've finished, you can't go on to the next thing. Mm, okay. How important is your little uh, dog in, in this whole thing, in this process? Well, I'll tell you the exact way to explain it. I had one little white dog for many years. And, you know, time takes our beloved animals from you. Mm -hmm. And the day I had to sit on the purple couch and there was no little white dog at the end of the couch, I got up. I said to my wife, I can't work. I have to have another dog. I mean, I have to have another dog like right away. So we went to every animal shelter on Long Island and I couldn't find, all they had at the time were big dogs. I have a problem with my back. I couldn't have a big dog on a leash in case it accidentally pulled me over. Uh -huh. So I'm weeping as we come home from this long journey and we pass a pet store, you know, a puppy store. Uh -huh. And my wife says, well, why don't we go in and look at the puppies? And no, no, I'll want one and I can't, I'm not, you're not supposed <laughs> to buy a dog. You have to adopt a dog. And my, she says, well, let's just go in and look. Uh -huh. So of course we walk in the store and the first dog puppy I see is a little white dog looks just like the dog I lost. Oh. I go over to look at it. She turns over on her back, looks oh. at me with the big black eyes. And I said, that's it. I know you. Done. I even know, I know your name. Your name is Susie Q. You're coming home with me. That's right. So, uh, but the next time, the, a couple of days later, I took her to the vet, you know, for the checkup. And I said, I'm so embarrassed. I bought a dog. You're supposed to only adopt dogs. And he said, Eleanor, every dog deserves a home. Oh. If this was meant to be your dog, it's perfectly okay. <laughs> even this, even this dog deserves a home. Thank mm. you. I feel better. So lovely. That's how important it is to have the dog. Wow, wow. You know, I have a dog who is. Well, I, I mentioned him in my intro, Sparky. Sparky, yeah. And Sparky is, he's 16. Oh, gosh. And so yeah. we're doing some pre-grief work right now yeah, because I, I know he's not going to last forever. And you talk about how you saw that puppy and said, yeah, I know you're my dog. Yeah. I mean, he's, I, I joke that we're from the same litter. <laughs> you know, I just get him. He gets me. We are synced up. And, yeah. you know, pe for people who are not dog people, maybe it's hard to understand. Yes. But it is intense. Yes. It is intense. So, um, Eleanor, how can people find out more about your work? Uh, I have a website. Mm -hmm. It's just my name, EleanorLerman.com. Mm -hmm. Or you can Google me. Mm -hmm. uh, 
the books are available on Amazon, all mm -hmm. my books, the poetry, the stories, and, and Watkins Glen. They're available on Amazon. Watkins Glen is also available on the publisher's website. The publisher is May Apple Press. Mm-hmm. I'll put that in. And um, when is the uh, launch for Watkins Glen, when, the official launch? June 21st. June 21st, coming up very fast. And we picked the month particularly because this is um, Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, do you have a launch party, or how do you celebrate a book going out into the world? Well, we didn't uh, plan anything this time because, you know, who knew right. that the world was going to, uh, at least the United States, was going to wonderfully come back online. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we wish the rest of the world soon to join us, mm -hmm. that everybody, everybody gets vaccinated and coronavirus just gets, you know, defeated. But we didn't know that we would be able to. So, no, we're not planning anything specific, um, although... Uh, I have uh, a beloved stepdaughter and grandchildren and a son-in-law who actually live in Ireland. And they'll be here to visit finally in mm. in September after a, we, we missed, they were supposed to come the April that everything shut down. So that'll be the big celebration. I'll get, finally lovely. get to see my, my family again. You know, my, my lovely. Yes. So that'll And a be. walk on the beach with yes. Susie Q and your family. Yes. Yes. Sounds beautiful. Well, I want to congratulate you on just a gorgeous book. I literally could not put it down. And um, it's just so beautifully crafted. I recommend it to and anybody, regardless of Alzheimer's, has uh, had an effect on your life or not. It's a beautiful story. And thank you so much for, I'm so honored to speak with you, Eleanor. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for letting me have such a lovely conversation with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. I love to hear from my listeners. Send me an email at NicoleChristina.com. It's no secret that everyone's feeling pretty restless and unsettled right now. Our lives are upside down and the future is feeling pretty uncertain. But if you're anything like me, organizing my stuff can help me feel a little calmer. It's something I can do to help me feel a little more in control and in charge of my own life. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer, Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. And Too Much Stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, 
you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest. (laughs) 